Can you hear me okay? There we go. Um, It's such a critical part of our walk, such an integral part, and I I really think it fuels much of the things that we sing about. Uh, In so many of the songs, our identity in Christ, where we are looking for our hope, and what Christ has done for us is what fuels that. So um, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of adoption today, um, and actually let's pray before we jump in. Let's come before the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you are here. Thank you for your word. As, as Dan said, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. And we ask that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds, that it would inform the way that we think, and that we would, um, as a result, walk differently, that we would walk in newness of life, and that you would um, help us particularly to be aware of our sinfulness, of our need, aware of your incredible grace, and to walk and respond in obedience and joy. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for this morning, Lord. Amen. So uh, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is how many areas of the Christian walk that the doctrine of adoption touches on. So we have adoption informing our understanding of ourselves, informing our understanding of God, fueling our love of God, and laying the foundation for our love of others. So I think that it's so integral, so so important for us to understand. So we're going to jump into a couple of heavy theological terms. Um, we're going to talk about the ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation. So in the, that's the only slide I have, guys. It's going to just be me droning for the next 45 minutes or so, so it's going to be great. Um, so the, the ordo salutis is the order of salvation. So in the Calvinist or Reformed ordo salutis, we have, um, uh, we have justification, adoption, and then sanctification. I think we as reformers tend to gravitate to justification and sanctification, which is, you know, justification being our legal standing before God. What Jesus did on the cross in saving us, paying our debt, we are now clean. And then we look at sanctification, which is the Holy Spirit empowering us to walk in obedience, growing us, right? But adoption is really what what enables sanctification to happen. And so I think the more we understand of adoption, I think the more that we're going to respond um, and love God through it. Um, J.A. Packer, in Knowing God, says, But justification does not of itself employ, imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And the more that we've been forgiven, the more we will respond in love, the more we understand that love, the more we are equipped to walk out the gospel. So I think it's so important for us here. Um, We're going to start by looking at the Old Testament, so turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 48. Um, My preference is to read the whole passage and then read it again as we break it down, but um, I have too many things for us to touch on. It's impractical. So we're just going to plow on through. So Genesis 48, starting in, uh, in verse 1. So to give us a little bit of context here, we have Joseph, the son of Jacob, um, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, his other sons, of course, were bitter against him. Um, Jacob loved him more than the other sons and ultimately ended up selling him into slavery in, uh, in Egypt. 
The Lord ultimately abundantly blessed Joseph, provided him the second most powerful position in Egypt, ultimately, and led uh, a famine into the land. The Lord led there to be a famine, and his brothers were brought ultimately to him, um, and, and Joseph, by the grace of God, forgave them and was able to welcome them in to the land of Egypt and provide for them. The Lord drew Joseph through tremendous heartache and pain, but ultimately was his hope and his salvation, and the Lord used those trials to provide for his family. And here's where we pick up in, uh, in Genesis 48. So it says in verse 1, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now for your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Rumid and Simeon are. So a couple of things we want to get out of that. When he says, your sons are mine, that sounds really threatening and intense. But what he's actually conveying is that these two sons of Joseph's would be considered his own sons. They are going to be brought into the family inheritance. They are to be considered heirs of, Joseph, of Jacob rather than heirs of Joseph. They would be sons of the promise that God made to Israel, to Jacob, rather than separated from that. And the way that that works, it, I had to wrap my mind around it a little bit. If we think of the 12 tribes of Israel, right, the tribe of Levi was left out of that inheritance because they were dedicated to the priesthood. And then Joseph was removed which because his, his household was in Egypt. And so that leaves two slots, which is where Ephraim and Manasseh fit in. Um, and so Ephraim and Manasseh are given that inheritance. And... Um, Another element to this is how Jacob says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Reuben and Simeon are his first and second born children. These, this isn't just adopting them in as, as children of one of the twelve. You can go in with the herd. No, these are the preeminent sons. In their culture, the first and second born would have received the most rich inheritance, right? So this adoption of these two sons is bringing them in as preeminent sons. And so what we're beginning to see is God's idea of adoption, God's type of love as we unpack what, uh, what Israel, what Jacob is doing. Uh, now in verse 6, we pick up, But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan, on the journey where there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, Well, stop there. Joseph, Jacob said, who are these? Jacob didn't even know what they looked like. This isn't based on the merit of those sons. Those sons didn't come in and he said, oh, I see that strong jaw. That's the jaw of a, of a children of Israel right there. Or these kids are going to do great things for me. No, it's, I don't even know these children, but I love them and I will adopt them as preeminent sons. So it's based on love that the adoption occurs, not based on merit, right? Let's continue. And in, um, in verse 9, Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. 
Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. It's based on love that Isaac, Jacob brings in Ephraim and Manasseh to his family. And it's not based on love for those children alone. It's based on the love that he has for his son. So this adoption is based on the love that the father has for the son. And that's a parallel that we're going to continue to see here. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. So we see here again, even though this adoption is not based on their merit, not based on direct contact and love in that sense, there's still a sense of rightness in terms of culture that Joseph says, this is the older and this is the younger. This is how it should be according to our culture that the older would receive the more rich inheritance, right? But we hear God saying here, the undeserving, the, the lesser, I will give the greater blessing to because this isn't about merit. It's about the lavish love and mercy of God. And that's the picture of adoption that turns these things on their heads. Culture, uh, biology, all of these things pale in comparison to the love of God. That's an earthly plane that we compare, that we evaluate based on rightness. God doesn't evaluate based on rightness. God evaluates based on his love and what is going to make him look the most loving and gracious. And we left off. Let's continue on just a little bit more. Um, We'll jump down to verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. God is in the business of upsetting culture and biology to bring unexpected blessings. God's gracious hand of blessing upsets our expectations, even though we can't help but but place a sense of rightness in these situations. So God's vision for adoption through the Old Testament in this picture is... Adopted children would be fully sons and preeminent among sons. Adoption is not based on merit, but based on love. And it's based on the love that the father has for the son. Adoption overturns biology and culture to bring lavish generosity. So that's the A picture we have in the Old Testament. Now we're going to jump over to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Now, when we consider the concept of, a, of adoption, well, we're... Yeah, we're going to get into that in a second here. So the book of Ephesians is broken up into two main parts. So the first three chapters are are broken up into the indicatives, and the last three, so four through six, are broken up into the imperatives. The indicatives are what's true, what's real, um, what what is the circumstances, right? What God has done for us, and ultimately we'll see through through here our identity in Christ. And then the last four, three chapters are the imperatives, what we should do with that, what we're commanded to do, the outflowing. Because of this, this is how we respond. In light of that, let's jump in uh, in verse 1, and we're going to see the foundation for all of this. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 
says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's his greeting. And then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's our that's our, our foundation for everything we're about to hear. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be God. Why? Because he has withheld no spiritual blessing. And in this context, he's talking directly about the Holy Spirit. He has given us a helper to empower us, to transform us, right? So the foundation, though, is we start with Blessed be God because of the great things that he has done. And he has done great things. And now we're going to see what those great things are. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, right? God had not yet created us, and he chose us. Does that reflect on our merit? Like we didn't exist, he had to create us, and then he had already purposed to adopt us. That reflects solely on the grace and mercy of God and not at all on our merit. That's a theme that we see all throughout scripture, that this adoption is one based on love. Number five, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So irrespective of our circumstances and a great act of love and mercy that occurred based on the merit of his kindness. To the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Again, reiterating these things he did. He chose us. He predestined us to the praise of his glory. Verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of all times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, in the heavens and all things on the earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Not only have our sins been cleansed, we've been given a new identity, and we've been given, promised an inheritance. And what is all that for? Number 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And we can see the more clearly that we understand his love, the more we are going to respond in praise and glory to God. We have this description of his graciousness, his mercy, and highlighting constantly. Why? Because God is kind. Because God is worthy to be praised. That's why it's so important for us. That's why the theology of adoption, I think, is something that we need to constantly be revisiting in our minds, and our hearts, because it affirms the goodness of God. It affirms our depravity. And as we know those things more fully, we will respond more fully. Um, so the summary here is that we've been chosen, we've been adopted into the family of God for his glory, that the multifaceted of love, God's love, multifaceted love of God may be shown, like Earl talked about last week, that hexagon of God's love. It's not just a single picture of love. There's kindness, there's patience, there's mercy, there's so many elements to that. So that the multifaceted of love of God may be shown for our good, that we might be recipients of his blessing so that we would result in praise to God. That is our response, is praise to God because of his grace and kindness to us. 
So we're seeing now the New Testament using the, the word adoption. We don't see that concept much in the Old Testament. Even the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh, the word adoption isn't there. It's, it's simply a concept that we see, right? Um, Jewish law didn't have a formal adoption process. Uh, if, if a man died, then his brother would receive the head of household inheritance, that type of situation, right? So there wasn't a formal adoption process. So when we're looking at this in Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church. What would have been their frame of reference when they used the word adoption? Well, that would have been the Roman cultural understanding of adoption. So as we begin to understand the Roman cultural understanding of adoption, that informs us to know exactly what Paul is trying to help us understand about the truth of adoption, right? Because what we're seeing is we're trying to wrap our minds around a spiritual reality, which is our adoption in Christ. And the, the reference that the Bible uses is physical adoption. So the more we understand about physical adoption, particularly in this context, the more we're going to grasp of the reality of spiritual adoption. So um, in, the, in the Roman law, um, having a child biologically did not confer that they were desired. Um, Roman children, if you had them biologically, could be disowned at any time. So it didn't confer choice or permanence. So a biological adopted or a biological child in the Roman culture did not mean that you were wanted and it didn't mean that you were permanent. By contrast, adopted children in Roman culture were freely chosen, desired. They were permanent. Their identity was permanent. They could not be disowned. Their debts were absorbed. New rights and responsibilities were given and joint share in all the inheritance was provided. So when the New Testament uses the word adoption, that's what, what the hearers would have, would have conceptualized. They would have thought permanent, desired, part of this inheritance. They would have, have pictured all those things in this idea of adoption. So how does this, what does this tell us about the spiritual type of adoption? We're going to run through these bullet points kind of on the screen really quickly. So children of God are freely chosen, not of their own merit, but based on the merit of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Children of God are adopted forever. John 10, 27, and 28 says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Children of God have their unpayable debt absorbed. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, children of God receive joint share in the lavish inheritance of his firstborn son. 1 Peter 1.3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And what's our response to those things? Blessed be God, right? God is worthy, and as we understand those, as we feel those, and the the reality of those things more fully, we respond in praise for him. So again, we didn't even exist. God created us, and yet he had already adopted us. God knew in his knew that, that inside of us we would have indwelling sin, that we would spit in his face, and that we would ultimately crucify him on the cross. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive in Christ. That's the type of love that we're looking at, and that's the type of love that will transform us. So now we're going to jump our way into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is where we're going to see a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of the, 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 the spiritual reality of adoption and how that plays itself out and how we should apply these truths that we're hearing in our spiritual walk with the Lord. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be jumping in on verse 14. In verse 14 it says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. The old is gone. It's been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. Our debt has been paid and that old self is no longer. Picking up in verse 16, Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. No longer are we looking for an earthly old covenant type Messiah. We're not looking for an earthly ruler to conquer and, and make our lives more comfortable and easy. We're looking to an eternal reality. The new that's come is our new covenant with God, wherein he is our hope and joy and we have a new identity as Christ followers. No longer is this just for the covenant people of Israel, but it's for all who would look to Christ and live by the power of his Holy Spirit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the new things that have come is our identity in Christ. And as we can see, our identity in Christ is completely different. As it says in Psalm 37, 4, um, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we begin to understand the love of God, we begin to understand our depravity, begin to love what God has done for us and respond in, in gratitude, he will conform our desires to match his desires. We will, we will desire that which is good for us ultimately because our God is a kind God and he does what is good for us. And that's what we've been so faithfully hearing taught from Earl is that our God, the type of love that he has is for our good, for our benefit. And as we walk in obedience, he will conform our hearts to give us desires that are right. So our, our identity in him is more real than biology ever could be. Um, flesh and blood is a wonderful thing and family is a beautiful thing, but that is just a picture of what family in Jesus is. The blood of Christ, which unites us in this room as the body of Christ, united together because of what Jesus has done, that is more, more firm than our biology, more consistent, more, more of a dependable unity, unifier, than anything this world has to offer. As such, those who are in Christ are closer than ethnicity, culture, or race, or any physical likeness could be. And so when we come across forms of partiality, like racism or, or other things like that, we say, 
The gospel is the ultimate unifier. Nothing horizontal will ultimately bring life and joy and true unity. The gospel of Christ is truly the unifier. And so we hope in God and what he has done and what he will do and what he can do to bring the type of unity we long for this side of eternity. Ultimately in Christ, in eternity is when we'll see that come to fruition. But that's why we are ambassadors for Christ. Um, so let's continue on here. Where did I leave off? Uh, verse 18. Now these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Our new vocation is ambassadors, right? Part of our identity is the rights and responsibilities given from God. And that job that we've been given is ambassadors for Christ. That means in the church and outside the church, we are to reflect God in these contexts. So our adoption into God's kingdom has done away with our old identity. A new identity with new privileges has been given. Our new responsibility, our new job, is ambassador for Christ. And what does that job description look like? Well, according to what we've just read, it's to carry the message of reconciliation into the foreign soil of this world. That is a foreign message. It's, it's contrary to the way of life that we all knew in our sin, right? In this world, the prince of the power of the air is at work. The devil, who is the father of all, who are not looking to Christ. If you're not looking to Christ, it's not as if you're following some moral compass that's just slightly different. It's that ultimately you are driven by your fleshly desires that Satan is controlling. Anything that we worship apart from God, that we look to for hope and life, will not satisfy. So when we come into this world as ambassadors for Christ... We proclaim the greatest news the world's ever known, and we are our own case study. We look to ourselves and say, look who I am, who I was. I am the example of the grace of God, that I, foremost of all sinners, have been forgiven by Jesus' blood. That's the message that we bring into this world, that our sin is deserving of punishment, but that God has sent his Son to redeem So our understanding of our identity in Christ as children fuels us as we take on the family traits and begin working in the family business. We become like him, our desires conform to his desires, and we proclaim his glory. For what? As Ephesians 1 said, to the praise of his glory. Blessed be God, right? As we see all these things working together. So the truth, the truth matters as we consider um, these realities. So our heart should reflect God in all of these areas. And we see how God's heart in adoption is for those who did not have hope, those who did not have opportunities, Ephraim and Manasseh, outside of the promise. Out, they had no hope apart from, uh, no hope for the type of promise, the type of, of inheritance that was ultimately given to them apart from Jacob welcoming them in. So our heart should reflect God's in desiring good for the weak and the marginalized. 
So our understanding of the purity and holiness of God, our understanding of our wicked heart and how our best deeds deeds come from a root of sinful idolatry, and our understanding of the mercy of God and his Son, sending his Son to bear the wrath that we deserve, equips us as we seek to magnify our unworthiness and his holiness. Again, we've touched on this before. As Luke 7 says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. The more we see those polarities to be as far as possible, our our likelihood of doing anything right, it's impossible for us to walk in perfect obedience. And our, our, our understanding of a holy God who requires perfect obedience, the more we understand how separate those poles are, the more we are going to respond with transformative love because God has transformed us with his kind of love. So we see that God's kind of love doesn't encourage us to seek opportunities to love those who can pay it right back. Like in Luke 14, we don't, we don't reach out to people who are, are ultimately going to give us something. We don't reach out, we don't look for the people who are well off, who we can invite over for dinner so that they can invite us over. We look for those who are hurting and don't have anything so that we can love them and show them the type of love that's been shown to us. Otherwise, it would be a fleshly outcome based on fleshly circumstances. If we're looking to get something out of the love that we're showing, that's not truly love. That's another form of idolatry. We're idolizing the outcome that we want rather than the type of love that God has shown us, trusting in his grace and the promised inheritance that he's given. We will receive a heavenly inheritance as a result of our obedience. So instead, we seek to demonstrate a picture of the love that God has shown us in his son, When he loved the weakest, he loved the least desirable. We look for those who have the least to offer and cannot pay us back. And we love them just like Christ loved us. And as we love them, we get to see the hand of God loving them in us and in the body of Christ. As followers of Christ with this mission as ambassadors, we should be on the lookout for the type of love that only comes from God. And when we see it in the body of Christ, we should affirm it, support it and encourage it. This is why there's no place for a Christian to say they don't have a heart for adoption. And I'm talking about physical adoption. A Christian can't say, I don't have a heart for adoption. Because God has a heart for adoption. In the same way that a Christian can't say, I don't have a heart for missions, I don't have a heart for discipleship, I don't have a heart for evangelism. Because God has a heart for missions, a heart for discipleship, and a heart for evangelism. And that's the image that he is conforming each of us into. So as we look at God... We should see ourself, and we should see our lack, and we should ask him to make us more like him. That doesn't mean that each of us needs to adopt from a foreign country and start a discipleship group in our home and head off uh, uh, evangelism in L.A. It might, but, um, <laughs> but your role might be different. The Lord has given us all different callings, um, but we are to care deeply about these things because God cares deeply about these things. Um, we're to participate in our Father's business, and this is our Father's business. And the church of God is the place where she, we should be the lookout for all kinds of love that reflects God's love, right? If you see someone who is considering adoption, who has a heart for it but doesn't have the funds for it. That's a great opportunity to come alongside them, affirm their desire. The desire to adopt is a good thing because it reflects a type of love that is unique, that is precious, and support them. Maybe someone is in the process of adoption and they are doing their home study. Watch their kids while they clean their house or come help them clean their house so they can succeed and affirm what they're doing. Maybe they already have kids. 
affirm them and ask them if you can encourage them if they're having issues that maybe you can help counsel them on. The, the body of Christ should be participating in each other's lives, encouraging one another regularly, consistently. And that doesn't just apply to adoption, of course. You know someone who's starting a small group or is running a small group and has been faithfully doing that in their home. Affirm them, encourage them, say that's a beautiful display of the love of God for his children, that you would faithfully give up your time to welcome people into your home and to minister to them the gospel, right? Affirm them. Even if it doesn't, even if it's not a grand thing, that is of God, right? You know a family who is preparing for the missions field, Affirm them, find them, and tell them that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. This is a desire from God, and that's a beautiful thing. See if you can help by watching their kids while they're participating in training, equipping. Um, You know, someone who's participating in some sort of evangelism. We need to be in the habit of coming alongside our brothers and saying, this is a good thing, and this is God in you, and I love to see God in you, to the praise of his glory, right? It's not a matter of making them look good. It's a matter of following that back to God and saying, isn't God kind for allowing us in this church to reflect his kind of love? That's a beautiful thing. Um, The grace that we've all received should work itself out in the local church. Great acts of obedience and faith should bring the body together in unity and praise of Christ, who obeyed his Father to show us the greatest love we could imagine. With that being said, it's important that we recognize that the outcome does belong to God. Um, It's one of those things we, we hear from Earl faithfully each Sunday, that we walk in obedience and the Lord ultimately brings the outcome. But circumstances in our lives are ultimately what God uses to show us these things, for them to become real in our hearts. So for Nika and I, our first embryo transfer, you know, we've been working for the past year trying to get this embryo adoption to go through when we finally did, and they thawed the embryo successfully, and we're, we're so excited. We have invariably have hopes and dreams that this baby is going to be ours, that we're going to be able to demonstrate God's love through them and walk this baby down the aisle one day and, and cherish them, right? These are all wonderful things. These are all good things but they can become idols if we look to those things to make us happy. So the Lord had an opportunity for us to learn in that moment when that embryo thawed successfully but started to die. It started to, it failed to grow the way that it should have and began to degenerate. And at that point, the, the organization is saying, great, let's get rid of this embryo. We'll get you another one. We'll get you pregnant. We'll get you out of here, right? But the Lord showed us that it wasn't about us getting pregnant. That wasn't the purpose the purpose for us to do this, we were, at a, we were at a fertility clinic, not because we needed more children. We're at a fertility clinic because we want to save children. We want to save babies. That's the purpose. That's the kind of love that God's shown us, and that's what he calls us to. The outcome belongs to God. As Vodi Bakum says, widows and orphans should have no better advocates and caretakers than Christians because we understand what the picture of adoption means, and we're conformed to the likeness of our older brother Jesus. We have the assurance that we are yours, and we want to show that assurance and selfless love to those like us. And Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In the words of Josh Mahorter from Crown Valley, As long as the world is finding new ways to make orphans, we, the church, will be finding new ways to care for them. We went ahead and transferred that embryo, that dying baby, and we loved it with all that we could for a couple of days, and then it passed away. And the world would see that as a failure, that as a, as a sad thing, that we will get over and we'll move on and we'll get the outcome that we desire. 
But all the time and the effort and the money that we put into that couldn't have been better spent because that was for the kingdom of God to demonstrate his kind of love for those who society sees as the least of these, as worthless, as not even worth identifying as a child. But that's what God calls us to. And that's the kind of love he's shown us. John 13, 1 says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As we understand that type of love, that's what transforms our hearts. So the question becomes, can you call God your Father? As we touched on before, the alternative to calling God your Father is ultimately following idolatry, led by the prince of the power of the air. If you can't call God your Father, then you are looking to this world and and the prince of the power of the air for a better deal. But he is a deceiver, and you will not find what you're looking for. Only in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you will you find the type of love that your heart longs for. Do you see your identity based on your biology and your accomplishments or your social status? Or have you put to death your old self, having nailed it to the cross with Jesus Christ? Have you put on your new identity as as a child of the living God and an ambassador for the King? And for his glory. When the rubber meets the road, can you say with Paul in Acts 20, 22 through 24, and now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and affliction awaits me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of God's grace. Do you count your life as little in light of the glory to be revealed when Jesus comes back? What an incredible type of love that God has shown us. And that's the response. Paul knows how great a sinner he is. He knows how great a Savior he serves. His identity in Christ cannot be shaken no matter how much torment the Romans or any of them put on him. He walks in faithful obedience in his new vocation with gladness because of a great Savior who is worthy to be praised. We hear these things, but do we know them and do we believe them and do we respond to them? By God's grace, I pray that we would be a church who responds to these things, that we would respond by counting our life as little in light of the grace that God has shown us. Dr. Robert Webb on the glory and importance of adoption wrote, When we approach him in the intensity of worship, we gather up all the sweetness involved in fatherhood and all the tenderness wrapped up in sonship. When calamities overcome us and troubles come in like a flood, we lift up our cry and stretch out our arms to God as a compassionate father. When the angel of death climbs in at the window of our homes and bears away the objects of our love, we found our deepest solace in reflecting upon the fatherly heart of God. When we look across the swelling flood, it is our Father's house on the light-covered hills beyond the stars which cheers us amid the crumbling of the earthly tabernacle, to which we say, Blessed be God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, minister to our hearts this type of love. Help us to understand the dimensions, the depth, the breadth, the width of your love. And may we not be the same as when we came in this morning, Lord. May we continue to meditate on these things. May we be renewed in the Spirit, Lord. 
Help us as a church in Costa Mesa to demonstrate the kind of love that the world does not understand, doesn't have a category for. And may their their confusion at our type of selfless love that reflects you lead them to ask questions about us, Lord, and that we would direct them to you. May we gladly and boldly make you known to those around us. May we be quick to shout your goodness and grace and reflect your kindness to us as we seek to love those around us. May we be quick to recount your faithfulness in our own hearts, in our own lives. May we be quick to humble ourselves and say, I am the foremost sinner of all, but God's love reached even to me and he can reach to you. Please, Lord Jesus, empower our hearts, encourage us, and draw us to yourself. Bless us as we finish our service with with worship and with communion. Draw our hearts into you, and may we be transformed. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.